Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Barry Craig, a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, joins us from West Kentucky on the podcast today. Mr. Craig is a professor emeritus of history at West Kentucky Community and Technical College, a journalist and the author of seven books. 2021 marks the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Craig's book, Kentuckians and Pearl Harbor, Stories from the Day of Infamy, Tell the tales of many of those Kentuckians, their families and friends who either died or lived through this tragic event. And it is indeed an honor to have Barry Craig on the podcast. Professor Craig, I will uh, direct my comments to you, sir, Um, as uh, one who is has made this uh, a lifelong pursuit. Am I correct about that? Tell me how you first got interested in in uh, Pearl Harbor, and and what uh, what was the first uh, uh, seed that you planted that that uh, took you to the book, and now uh, these talks that you give about Pearl Harbor? Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the program. Uh, when I was in junior high school, uh, I came across a copy of the book called a, a, a Day of Infamy by Walter Lord. And of course, that's a takeoff on President Roosevelt describing December the 7th, 1941 as the date which will live in infamy. The book was absolutely fascinating to me. I guess it's what you would call today social history. Walter Lord set out to describe the attack from the point of view of ordinary American and Japanese participants, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and civilians. he left the, the, the talk about grand strategy and all this other stuff to, to others. And it was a fascinating account, a minute by minute account. And I was really intrigued by the fact that how crystal clear the memories of these folks were. The book came out in the 50s, but I mean, it was. And so when I went to work at the old Paducah Sun Democrat as a reporter and a feature writer, ultimately in 1976, one of my old professors at Murray State, uh, Dr. Jim Hammock, uh, sent me a, a, a list of Pearl Harbor survivors in Kentucky. I was astonished there were that many, around 250 or so, if memory serves. And of course, what I did, since the Paducah Sun Democrat was a regional paper, I looked for people in our area and I was running the list in alphabetical order. And a, the, a name at the bottom of the list jumped out. His name was James Allard Vessels. He was on the Arizona. And of course, the Arizona is the most iconic of the warships lost at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Most of the deaths in Pearl Harbor occurred on the Arizona. If you've been to Honolulu, to Pearl Harbor, uh, there's a famous memorial. Uh, It is a white structure. It straddles the ship. It doesn't touch the ship. Uh, you You can make out the outline of the ship as you look over the edge uh, and bits of fuel oil still seep up. They call that the tears of the Arizona. Well, I phoned this man, not knowing if he wanted to talk about it or not. He said he would be happy to. I went up to his house, spent a good deal of time out there. And I remember coming back to the the office 
thinking of all the stories I may end up writing as a reporter in my career, this one will be very close to the top. Uh, again, I was absolutely astonished at the clarity this man had in remembering this. This would have been all around the 1st or 2nd of December of 1976. And so I sat there enthralled. You know, sometimes you're listening so hard, it's hard to write things down. But if you're a reporter, you're supposed to write it down. And so I was writing feverishly in my notepad. But anyway, uh, he had the day off, which is called Liberty in Navy. My dad's a Navy veteran, so some of these terms I, I, I knew. And he went to chow and put on his uniform. And before the war in the tropics, uh, the Navy sailors, the, the sailors wore short pants. So this guy puts on black shoes, white socks, white shorts, a white t-shirt and a white hat. He goes to chow, goes up on the anti-aircraft deck of this battleship to play a game, a uh, Navy card game called AC Ducey. I don't know how to play that, but it's apparently it's, it's a famous Navy game. Well, the, the, the planes arrive and like thousands of, of folks in, in Pearl Harbor and that area, they had no, they, they, the first thing he thought was, well, why is the Army Air Force up practicing on a Sunday morning? This is my day off. I want to play cards. Then I want to do something else. I just want to be left alone. Um, and very quickly, they discovered that this was an actual air raid. Um, his battle station uh, was, the, was the loftiest perch on this battleship. And I would encourage your listeners to, to get a find a photograph of the Arizona. The Arizona was a huge ship, one of the largest ships in, in the United States Navy. Has two masts. There's a foremast and a main mast. The main mast is the one behind. Um, his position, uh, good thing he wasn't scared of heights, was an anti-aircraft platform uh, on the very top of this mast. It's 90 feet above the water level. Now to get up there, you have to climb ladders and stairs on the outside of the legs of this tower. Well, that's a pretty good climb in peacetime, but try to imagine when you're doing this under fire. He, he and several other sailors are scrambling up this, this main mast. Now the main mast has uh, various positions in it. Uh, for example, the searchlight deck, there's also various compartments that they do things. So he climbed, and as he's going up this thing, I mean, guys are getting shot off this thing above him and below him. Well, he gets up to the top of this main mast with his, with his, uh, he's a gunner, a machine gunner, along with the rest of his crew. Uh, and when they get up there, they discovered that this course being peacetime, there's no ammunition. Uh, Navy regulations call for all ammunition to be locked up but, but during peacetime for obvious reasons. Well, so they're up there and they're absolutely powerless to, uh, to do anything. Uh, he said when, when the planes were coming, these dive bombers, or these uh, torpedo bombers are coming very low. In fact, they were lower than he, he would have actually been firing down on these planes. You can imagine that. And he said at first they would swing these guns around and aim them at them, and then they would take evasive action. Then they figured out that they had no ammunition. Anyway, uh, as you know, the story, like so many others, uh, it just very, very shortly in the attack, the Arizona was hit with a bomb and it exploded. Uh, it was a special bomb made of a, a naval artillery shell, naval gun shell with fins. It penetrated the deck and exploded in a magazine. And this part just absolutely blew me away. <clears throat> the Arizona weighed 32,600 tons. The blast was so powerful 
it literally broke this ship in half and raised the forepart of the ship about 50 feet up into the air. So you can do the math, two into 32, six, that's, that's half this ship flies in the air. When it came down, it hit with such an impact that it generated a little wave, 12 to 15 feet, which washed over Ford Island. Now, this was told to me by Daniel Martinez, who is the park historian out in Honolulu. And he said, you know, when I got to Pearl Harbor, he said, I heard these stories about the Arizona flying up that high, the front part of it. And he said, you know, he thought, well, maybe, maybe not. Well, so he got with some, uh, there, there's actually, there's actually a very famous, uh, it wouldn't be video, it'd be film, of the Arizona exploding. And they slowed that, slowed that, slowed that down. And you can actually see it happen. Uh, the was black, Vessel still uh, on top of the uh, his he perch? Is, he's still there. Now, the, the, the main mast, if you look, collapses into the flames. You'll see it is tilted forward at a pretty steep angle. The main mast stood. In fact, the, the rear of the Arizona was not all that heavily damaged. Uh, this, uh, Daniel Martinez said he survived because the blast went forward and not aft. If it had gone aft, he'd have been killed too. So you said, you asked, is he still there? Yes, he was. So were his buddies. They were sitting there in their skivvy shorts. The blast blew all of their clothes off, their shoes, their life jackets, their helmets, their jumpers, gone. And he has no idea what happens to them. So they know that this point, the Arizona is finished. Uh, they peered over the edge of this thing. They can see the whole forepart of the ship is gone. They climbed down, uh, and when he reached the searchlight deck, he said that's where he saw the first casualty. It was an officer uh, who was in his whites, dress whites, lying on his face, uh, and he said that with a, with a pair of binoculars around his neck, and he said that the soles of his shoes were curled up from the heat. He then uh, climbed all the way down, and if you, again, if you've seen these photographs of, of these ships, they sank, but the main decks are above water. It's pretty shallow there. And he survived the attack. Somewhere in the attack, he was hitting the leg with shrapnel and he cut it out with his pocket knife, which is a pretty tough sailor back in those days. This story was incredible. Now, I would say also that uh, he was playing cards with a man named Lightfoot. And so he and his wife went back in 1971 on the 30th anniversary. And if you've been to Pearl Harbor or you've seen this memorial, uh, inscribed inside of the names of all the sailors and Marines who were killed on this ship. And he went looking for Lightfoot's name and he found it. Um, he survived the attack. That was the first one of these stories. And I interviewed about 12 of these guys after that. Barry, uh, the significance of the 80th anniversary and what some remember uh, who might've lived through it or were small children at the time um, or have studied it in um, hopefully in history. What does, what should it mean to us today that we still look back and, and celebrate uh, this horrific event? That's an excellent question. Uh, of course, one thing uh, I believe I'm writing saying there is no one alive today who was in, in the attack. And what there's some 5% of World War II veterans are left anyway. My dad is, is dead. My father-in-law is dead. Um, I think what it, what it did, this event was galvanizing. If you studied American history, you know 
that in the 1930s, there was a good deal of isolationist sentiment in the United States. Um, we got into World War I late uh, in 1917. Uh, American troops didn't arrive in, on the Western Front in significant numbers in 1918, so they weren't in the war that long. But we were in this war long enough to convince a lot of Americans that anything would be better than a World War II. And if you look at the tragic appeasement policy on behalf by the French and the British who kept appeasing Hitler, and, and their whole idea was anything's better than a World War II. And of course, the tragic results are a war bloodier and more, most horrific than World War I. Pearl Harbor ended almost all isolationist sentiment. Uh, we have never fought a war in our history more unified than the Second World War. Uh, I used to tell my students, those who want to get into the Daughters of the American Revolution, I said, be careful how you shake that family tree because a patriot falls off one limb and a Tory off the other. There was scarcely a battle in the American Revolution that you won't find Americans on both sides. Uh, you go through the other wars, War of 1812, a lot of opposition in New England, uh, the Mexican-American War, a lot of opposition in the North, the Civil War, that's obvious. Uh, World War I, there was a good deal of opposition in World War I. And then, of course, you get Vietnam and the wars subsequent to that. But the whole country uh, pitched into this. Uh, and that is why my book is titled Kentuckians and Pearl Harbor, because it does take in the home front. Um, one of the things I would suggest uh, is that uh, never underestimate the might of the United States. Now, the Germans declared war on us. The Japanese declared war on us. We declared war. We, we, I mean, the Germans, the Italians, we declared war on Japan. They didn't believe that the United, well, number one, they believed that the United States, we were soft, we were weak, that uh, all, all American males like to do was run around and chase women to get drunk. I don't see how that would disqualify you as a soldier, but nonetheless, and that America's, we were terrific at consumer goods. It's odd the Americans can make refrigerators and razor blades, but they cannot make a war machine. Well, if you look how quickly this country retooled to war production, uh, Henry Ford, his famous plant at the River Rouge in, in Michigan, they're turning out bombers. Uh, they're turning out, by the end of the war, we were turning out ships, planes, I mean, massive, massive amounts of war material. Uh, some of the best equipment in the Second World War what was American made. Uh, that was that to me. But again, it's the unity that this country felt. Everybody was in it. Uh, everything was rationed. And most people didn't complain. They pulled together. You know, people complain now about getting a shot and COVID. They weren't doing that then. Uh, it was all in this. My mother worked for the ration board in Grace County. You know, in fact, you might some of your listeners might look around in their grandparents or great grandparents stuff and find an old ration book, ration book tires, gasoline, all this stuff, everything went toward the, the war. Here in Western Kentucky, I grew up in Mayfield, live in Arlington, but in Mayfield, um, there was a there were clothing factories and they immediately started making military clothing. There was an ammunition plant at Viola, Kentucky, all over the state, there were these war plants. So again, to me, the significance of this was the absolute, nearly 100% unity and support for this war. Uh, Barry, I can uh, add a little bit to that. Uh, my father was uh, um, in business at the time, and uh, 
uh, was not uh, eligible to go uh, to battle. Uh, he wanted to, but uh, his uh, terrible eyesight kept him uh, from passing the proper test. So he, uh, to survive during the war uh, and support his mother, he, he started a business. And uh, some of the products he was selling at that time to country stores was chocolate and cigarettes. And they were rationed to him to resell to the to the country stores. So the whole the whole country, whether you were uh, in battle or not, uh, suffered it, uh, and 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 made a call to arms. They they were supportive of of our efforts. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, for years, we lived in a house in Mayfield. Uh, the the family that only before the man, his name was Dan Garrett. He was in Europe in the war, uh, in the army, a sergeant. He won a French Corps de Guerre with Palm uh, Cross of War, and he also an American Silver Star. He was a highly decorated soldier with combat infantry badge. And he said, you know, he said, it didn't matter whether you were in combat in the Pacific or in Europe, or you were in the military, never left the United States, or you were civilian. We were all in this together. And of course, he denied he was a hero, like all of them do, uh, but he was. And I thought that was so poignant. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, victory gardens, uh, uh, they hung flags, one of the blue stars, uh, the Presbyterian church in Mayfield, where I grew up, they had a big, uh, it was a poster of all the men from the church in the military. I've seen those in other churches too. Uh, there was a real sense that we're all in this together. Barry Craig is the um, uh, West Kentucky um, Technical and uh, Community and Technical College a Professor Emeritus of, of History. He was a journalist for a a part of his career uh, and the author of seven books, including Kentuckians and Pearl Harbor Stories from the Day of Infamy. And we're talking about that because in 2021, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And I'm going to ask Barry to relate to us um, a couple of things when we come back on the other side. One uh, the uh, we've talked a little bit about civilians and, and uh, what they were doing uh, in the war at that time. Some stories from uh, that he uncovered from uh, Kentuckians that uh, he uh, has interviewed. And, and again, just how strong this uh, this patriotic uh, fervor was for those who either didn't go to war or were supporting uh, our troops. So we'll be back with Barry Craig right after this. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Our good uh, underwriters, uh, Professor Craig from Spalding University in Louisville. Uh, we're so pleased and proud to have them as an underwriter of our Think Humanities podcast. So um, it, it we, we all uh, are familiar with, but maybe need to be reminded about the sacrifice that our soldiers uh, made uh, in so many uh, different uh, areas of the world, uh, but certainly because we're talking about Pearl Harbor today, uh, the loss of life there and the survivors, but there were a lot of things going on in the home front. So 
tell us uh, about um, a civilian or two that uh, that made a mark on you as you did your research. Well, of course, again, I always admonish my students to try not to look through uh, 21st century eyes. That That's impossible. Try not to. For example, communication. How did people hear about this? By radio. And what's interesting is most Kentucky farms in 1941 did not have electricity. So you're talking very few radios. Uh, case in point was my old editor, Ed, Ed Paxton uh, of the uh, Paducah Sun Democrat. He happened to have forgotten something, and he went up to the paper on Sunday afternoon to pick it up. And when he was in the newsroom, the phone rang, and he picked it up, and a man said, Ed, have you heard that the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor? No. So what does he do? He goes to the AP wire, flips it on, and of course, it starts to chatter. Now, I know you've seen these old movies, extra, extra, read all about a kid on the street. Well, newspapers, some of them did put out extra. The Courier Journal put out an extra. The Paducah Sun Democrat put out an extra. So one of the interesting story was how he did this. Now, of course, Sunday afternoon, everybody was off. Everybody was going home. So Ed starts calling, and everybody start, these editors start calling, bringing in reporters. Well, one of the reporters was a man named Mitchell, who was out taking a flying lesson near Paducah in this little airplane that didn't have a radio. And so one of the other editors went to get him. And he had to wait for him to get down in the plane. And, of course, when he got down, he was horrified because his brother was stationed at, uh, at, at, at Wheeler Field. Now, that's something about the Pearl Harbor attack. It wasn't just Pearl Harbor. It was the air bases all around the island because the Japanese knew to be successful, they had to achieve air superiority. So they went after the Marine and the Navy and the two big Army air base. It was, the, it was the Army Air Force back then, not the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so they hit uh, Wheeler and Hickam Fields. Now, Hickam Field was adjacent to Pearl Harbor, still is, and Wheeler Field is adjacent to Schofield Barracks in the interior. Uh, so they come into work, and, and they're doing everything, and, and Ed said that they had a really hard time because people were calling constantly. Do you know about my son? What about my son? What about my son? And they finally got the paper out. Uh, the reaction of people uh, to getting back to Mr. Vessels, uh, he had he was engaged to a woman named Anita Hodge from Fancy Farm. You know, you've been to Fancy Farm many times. In fact, I've seen you down there. Uh, he had sent home uh, an engagement ring, mailed it home to her. And so uh, actually he mailed it home to his parents. And they call up her parents and says, well, I, you know, Jim has sent home this, uh, like Allard's what they call him, has sent home this ring. Why don't we get to, well, yes, come over on Sunday. We'll go to church together there at the St. Jerome's there in, in Fancy Farm. And we'll have dinner and we'll, we'll talk and listen to the radio. That's a great idea. So over they went, went to church, had dinner, listened to the radio, and she tries on this engagement ring. And the date was December the 7th. 1941. Her first thought was, I'll never see my husband to be. Uh, the, some of the other stories are just, they're almost bizarre. For example, our state capital, Frankfurt, it was decided that they would have an air raid drill. Now, you don't have to be an expert on military aviation to know that in 1941, there is no plane in the world 
in the Japanese Air Force or the German Air Force that could have flown from Tokyo or Berlin to Frankfurt. But in the, this is getting into the spirit again. And I can tell you this, my high school, I went to the old Mayfield High School. There were blackout curtains still on the auditorium windows when I was there from 1960, uh, uh, when I graduated in 1967. So anyway, so they didn't have a proper air raid siren in Frankfurt. So they decided that what they would do is get an old steamboat whistle and put it on the roof of a building. And that would be the announcement that the air raid was going. Well, this was lampooned in the press, as you can imagine. Well, the Frankfurt folks, they were not really getting into this too much. The wardens were making them get into buildings and hide. There was a story about a preacher, a teetotaling preacher, who went into a liquor store and they made him go in there. And that was funny. And so what's bizarre is that so they all get inside these storefronts and they sit just inside the windows so they can see everything. What's the worst place you could be in an air raid? Sitting <laughs> in a plate glass window. That, that was part of it. Uh, there were uh, there were guards placed all over the place. Uh, there was fear of sabotage, uh, uh, the, the, especially little airstrips where the spies would supposedly land. Uh, Barry, I'm just going to ask you, um, what does your research or your teaching over the years about the attack um, and and about it uh, being conducted um, without uh, our American uh, armed forces? really knowing anything about it. Now I have read and, and there have been several films, um, documentaries uh, about the hint that, I mean, they, they knew something was coming up, but they didn't know exactly when, and they didn't know with what force, but what does your research tell you about that day and, and about the surprise attack? What I would tell my students that throughout history, there have been examples of incredible surprise attacks Let's go back to ancient Rome. Hannibal decided, I'm going to invade Italy. How did he do it? He crossed the Alps with elephants. The next thing you know, the Romans think, how'd they get there? Well, they got there. And of course, then he, he tore up Jack all over Italy for years. The Americans knew that the Japanese were about to do something, but no one had any conception they could sail six aircraft carriers across the Pacific Ocean and do this. But they did it in an absolutely brilliant fashion. Now we're December the 7th, we're getting toward winter. The North Atlantic and the North Pacific are very inhospitable during that period. They crossed in the North, across the North Pacific. There were, there's no ships up there. Nothing is up there. Uh, they, by the time they got there, and again, there's also the story, I know you've read it about these uh, army radar operators who see these blips on a radar screen up, up on the north part of Oahu. And they tell an officer and he said, I don't worry about it. It's just, it's just, it's these B-17s coming in from, from the, from the coast. What the Americans expected was an attack on uh, British possessions, uh, Dutch possessions, uh, the Philippines, uh, which of course that was carried out in, 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 uh, but what's interesting, too, is it really uh, I, in my book, there are I've got accounts of, of people saying that, no, there'll be no war here. There's no way they can get here. It'll be in Europe. Uh, there are fascinating accounts of even folks there had no notion that they could pull this off. But again, if you said the history of warfare, there are incredible surprises. The Normandy invasion, I mean, the Germans knew we were coming at some point. But on that morning, they were completely surprised by this, by this massive attack. Uh, 
It, uh, uh, but what's fascinating too, the, the Japanese admiral who planned this attack, uh, Admiral Yamamoto, which I'm sure is not correct Japanese pronunciation, but I'm a Western Kentucky and I do the best I can. He supposedly told the Japanese warlords, I can pull this off. I can surprise them, but I make no promises after six months. Now he may not have said this, but he, he apparently did. This guy had been a Japanese naval attache in Washington. He spoke English. He knew the Americans. He said, you are waking a sleeping giant. Those mm -hmm. former students, six months from December the 7th, 1941, you get the Battle of Midway. Four of those Japanese carriers are sunk. That's the turning point. Yeah. There's a lot, lot, lot of fighting that goes on after Midway in June of 42. Yeah. Fascinating story, uh, all of it. Tell us, um, as we go out, uh, Barry, uh, tell us one or two more stories of Kentuckians uh, that you uh, traced down, researched, and, and wrote about. Gosh, where do I start? Uh, my wife can probably give you some help here. Uh, well, for example, uh, what people were doing at the time. Yeah. Well, let me get, let me get, I'll bring this. So this is pretty timely. Uh, USS Oklahoma was torpedoed and sank, uh, hit with nine torpedoes, and it capsized. Uh, amazing. Uh, one of, in fact, one of my Pearl Harbor vets I talked to said that when he got off the USS California, it was sinking. He said, I, he said, I, I saw the biggest submarine I've seen in my life. It wasn't a submarine. It was the hull of the Oklahoma turned upside down. Mm. Well, the, uh, it took a, over a year to write this ship. And when they did, the remains were, well, you can imagine what they were. Well, because of DNA, uh, they have been able to identify a number of these guys whose remains are buried in mass graves. One fairly recently uh, from Paducah, a man named Hal Jake Allison. Well, the Allisons didn't know a thing about Pearl Harbor until the next day. They did not have their radio on. Apparently, they lived in isolation because they knew nothing about it until they heard President Roosevelt giving the war declaration. And uh, Hal Jake's mother, Opal Allison, got her from her chair and said, my son is dead. And he was. They didn't know that for two weeks. Uh, there was a story about a woman in, in Louisville. Uh, she was so distraught. She had to have medical care, lost 50 pounds. Uh, her, her, she, when she told uh, her brother about it, he died of a heart attack when he heard about that this guy. And this guy was not dead. This is the emotional roller coaster of this. Jimmy Hamlin, for example, from Lone Oak, who, who was from, uh, from Harlan at the time, his dad got the telegram that he was killed in action. Then he got another telegram. We made a mistake. This happened. This, this, this is, and again, go back, no cell phones, no text messages, no emails. You're strictly, the only, only communication is by radio or telegraph. Another really tragic story is about a family up in central Kentucky. They got a telegram saying, your son is dead. Second telegram comes, no, he's alive. Third telegram comes and says, yes, he's dead. The emotional, and this is the Christmas season. Can you imagine the horrible Christmases that these folks had? Either knowing that their loved one was dead or got the missing in action. A missing in action almost always meant dead. But uh, Daniel Martinez told me that, that uh, people thought, well, maybe they were captured. And of course, there was no invasion. Uh, one of the, this is one of the most bizarre stories uh, in, in, a, 
Yeah. See, the thing about a book, you don't want to tell too much. You won't buy your book. But uh, in a certain <laughs> town in Kentucky, they decided to burn all the Japanese products they had. And then the birds said, now, wait a minute. I'm going to lose some money. Do it. So they go this whole thing about what they're going to burn. It's just it's yeah. loose, the, the whole thing. Uh, they, they, they put guards on the reservoir out at, in Danville. Uh, and it's just, it's just, uh, uh, and what, what a, 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 a young, young kid, uh, when he was delivering the, the, the extra of the, uh, uh, on Democrat, he rode in a car yelling, you know, extra, extra, just like the British are coming. He's like Paul Revere's ride through Ballard County, Kentucky. Well, a lot of stories, uh, that Barry Craig, uh, tells for Kentucky Humanities as a member of our speakers bureau, uh, Barry's uh, description of his talks uh, is on our website, kyhumanities.org, kyhumanities.org. And uh, Barry, and uh, a, a full list of our Kentucky um, Humanities Speakers Bureau members are there for you to uh, ask to come to your church, your social event, uh, your school, uh, your civic club. Um, they're all excellent. Uh, I have not heard Barry in person, but I've seen him and heard him uh, do his presentation. And I guarantee you it will be uh, worth your your time. And uh, Barry will be um, uh, are, are things. How, give us a give us an overall report on how things are going in Western Kentucky. Uh, Barry, you know, sometimes when I run into to West Kentuckians, uh, they they uh, uh, honestly have a bit of a chip on their shoulder and rightly so that they feel cut off from the rest of the of the state which is not true of course uh but um i, I just would like to know how things are going down there well that has that's what people have always said but you know we, we had a governor Julian carroll from mccracken county uh, had a fellow named alvin barkley who was born in mayfield and so western kentucky hasn't been as put upon as western kentuckians say that they are um, I think that, that that's, that's faded to some extent because there's so much travel now. Uh, and we used to be isolated. Honest, that is true. If you go back to the Jackson purchase, when it becomes part of Kentucky, mm-hmm. the 1920s to get to, to the purchase from Kentucky, you've got to do about, you've got to cross the Cumberland and city river. So we, there was a good deal of isolation. Uh, How's the, uh, the economy, is it coming back after COVID? Uh, that's kind of hard to say. COVID is still, still a little early. Yeah, well, it is. And, and of course, with regard to the, the I'm sure with the Speakers Bureau, certainly with as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. I, this is really I haven't had many, many requests. And, and I totally understand that and fully support that. But I will tell your listeners they want to get me now. My wife has got our Moderna booster today. So we're oh, all, all right, we're ready, we're ready to roll. That's You're ready, ready to go. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Barry, uh, thanks so much. We appreciate you being a member of our Speakers Bureau and and the, the work you've done all of your life and uh, uh, the expertise that you bring to this uh, uh, role of storyteller. And uh, we we hope that uh, because we are coming out of COVID, that you'll be doing a, a lot more of that for Kentucky Humanities. I, I enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed this that Humanities program. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.